0: This episode of Navara Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moira McLean, back with a brand new look, and tonight I'm joined by Mike Bancole. Mike, thank you so much for coming on.
1: It's a pleasure. Uh, glad to be back with you. I'm actually also back, so it's the return of Moira and Mike, which is, which is
0: nice. <laughs> Eminem taking on today's top stories. Coming up tonight, we'll be talking about the protests that have occurred in Peckham following a viral video showing an altercation between a shop owner and a customer. The Met have made another major payout and apologised to two women who were arrested during the Sarah Everard vigil and a rare uplifting story about housing that you should definitely stay tuned for. Let's go to our first story, shall we? Labour leader Keir Starmer and Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper are in The Hague. No, they're not testifying on behalf of Tony Blair, but instead they are visiting Europol headquarters and they're talking tough on small boats. This is how The Sun described Labour's plans. Migrant plan. Small boat people smugglers should be treated like terrorists attacking Britain, declares Sir Keir Starmer. Now, that is an eye-catching headline, as the Sun are wont to do, but Starmer's plans are actually much less dramatic than the Sun's leader writers. What he actually wants to do is apply serious crime prevention orders to people smugglers. These are usually used to freeze criminals' assets and restrict their movements. Speaking to the Times, Starmer said this. They've been used, these powers, for terrorism, for drug trafficking, but they've never been used for serious organised immigration crime. My own view is that they should be used for that. God, he gives a boring quote. The heart of Starmer's plan for tackling migration is greater cooperation with Europe. Speaking to Times Radio, Starmer explained
2: just how this would work. We know that serious organised immigration crime is being run by gangs across borders involving the movement of people um, and equipment Um, and involving a huge amount of money that is being made by these gangs that are driving this vile trade. Now, that is not unique because you have similar operations when it comes to terrorism, um, ammunition and Mm -hmm. guns being sent across borders, human trafficking, particularly of women being exploited for sex. So we have or there are examples of how these gangs can be smashed. And so what I want to see is a new security uh, agreement with Europe, where we can work with our partners in Europol and Eurojust with a cross-border police unit. Okay,
0: cross-border police unit. Is this really new? Well, the UK already works with Europol to tackle people smuggling gangs. Just last summer, Europol made 39 arrests of people smugglers as part of their Operation Dune, involving officers from four European countries as well as the UK's National Crime Agency – 150 dinghies were seized, as well as tens of thousands of euros in cash. But the boats kept coming anyway. Still, Starmer wants to inject more cash into the joint operations between the NCA and Europol. The money would apparently come from the scrapping of the Tories' disastrous Zorwanda scheme, so some good news there. But what about safe routes for asylum seekers? Times Radio asked Starmer about that too.
3: Isn't the reality here that, in truth, the quickest way to solve this problem would be to set up safe and legal routes? Will you just be honest with people and say, we let more people in, we stop the gangs, but under Labour, net migration goes up?
2: No, under Labour, we get in control of this situation. At the moment, we've got the appalling situation where we are not deciding as a country who's coming uh, to the UK, the gangs are deciding. That is fundamentally wrong.
0: Given that net migration has hit record highs under the Conservatives' rush to control our borders, I'm not sure how much higher it could really get. Anyway, that's not really an answer, but Starmer has pledged to process claims more quickly. At the end of last year, the backlog of cases stood at over 160,000 cases, leaving vulnerable people in limbo for years. There's also been the suggestion that Starmer would negotiate a new migration returns agreement with the EU. The Times reports this. Starmer confirmed that Labour would ultimately seek an EU-wide returns agreement. Quote, we effectively exited the returns agreement we were in and have never replaced it. The first job is to secure the borders and make sure we are the ones determining who comes to this country, he said. The EU is working on a new returns agreement that would mean each member state take a minimum annual quota of 30,000 migrants or pay 20,000 euros for each person they do not accept. Asked if he would be willing to accept the quid pro quo of migrant quotas in exchange for a deal, Starmer said that would be part of any discussions and negotiations with Europe. That concession, if you want to call it that, has the right frothing. Giving them an opportunity to accuse Starmer of handing the control of our borders to Europe. Here's Health Secretary Steve Barclay on LBC.
4: Noting that the fifth of the Prime Minister's five pledges was to stop the boats, moving to other matters. How embarrassing mm. will it be if Sir Keir Starmer has actually alighted a pl- upon a plan that will work and we'll hear more of later today? Well, he hasn't. I mean, it's just yet another flip-flop from Keir Starmer. I mean, how is yeah, it of housing because, because he wants to surrender control of our immigration to the EU and let them decide uh, on the quotas. There's almost a million uh, crossings into the uh, almost a million um uh, asylum seekers coming into the EU. Uh, the proportion we would need to take in terms of the quota will be far in excess of any numbers now. And what the National Crime Agency and others have said is we've got to have a strong deterrent. That is what we're putting in place. We've got a returns agreement with Albania that's seen a 90% reduction. Uh, the number of crossings into the UK is down 20% this year. To the EU, it's up 30%. So what Keir Starmer is proposing is to give the EU control of our immigration policy, let them decide on the quota. And given the numbers going into the EU are significantly up, the number that we would then have to take in return would be much higher than is the case now.
0: Well, this chat about giving the EU and Europe control of our borders when we're paying France, about, I don't know, was it £478 million over the next three years in order to patrol their beaches. I feel like we've already ceded control of these borders and it's resulting in human misery. Home Secretary Soella Braverman, however, upped the ante, saying this. Finally, we see Sir Keir Starmer's migration plan. He'll let Brussels decide who comes to the UK. He'll agree to make Britain the dumping ground for many of the millions of illegal migrants that Europe doesn't want. And none of this will stop the boats. Nothing these people do stop the boats. Side so of millions. Well, actually, the scheme that Starmer is talking about sets a quota of thirty thousand people per year in twenty twenty two. 46,000 people entered the UK across dangerous channel crossings, so that would be a 30% reduction. Here's how Starmer responded to the Tories'
2: claims. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has tweeted that your plan would make Britain the dumping ground for many of the millions of illegal migrants that Europe doesn't want. Government sources talking about 100,000 extra asylum seekers. It's embarrassing that the government is pumping out this nonsense. I can only assume it's because they've got nothing sensible to say on the issue. What I'm discussing today is a security agreement, sharing of information, operationalising the way that we can smash these gangs. I think anybody watching this would say, that's common sense, we need to do it, get on with it. But um, I'm afraid this is now typical from a government that's completely lost control of the situation.
0: Can you believe it? I actually agree with part of what Keir Starmer is saying there. This is because the government have absolutely nothing useful to add to the discussion. And Sam Coates and Skye added this useful bit of context to the overall debate. Today, Tories accuse Labour of wanting to make the UK the, quote, dumping ground for many of the millions of illegal migrants that Europe doesn't want. This is because Keir Starmer has said again today he wants to negotiate a returns agreement with the EU and the quid pro quo would be accepting quotas of migrants from the EU. Earlier in the summer, Rishi Sunak was attempting to negotiate his own returns agreement. Tim Barrow's negotiations stalled, and we don't know the precise terms, but would have almost certainly involved the UK taking a share of EU migration. Some in the Home Office came across as less enthusiastic than number 10 on this. I think, in fact, some more extra reporting Sam Coates did on this story uh, found that the reason those negotiations stalled is because the government hardline said we will not accept quotas. Mike, is Keir Starmer's plan a winner, even if it doesn't yet outline those safe legal routes?
1: I think the safe and legal routes is the big problem for Kyrgyzstan because that is the only way to stop these boat crossings. So I think Starmer and, and Labour have proposed a bare minimum, which is obviously an improvement to what the Conservatives are offering us at the moment. But you know, t- in terms of processing claims quicker, in terms of stopping Rwanda, and I think any sensible person knew Rwanda was an absolutely stupid policy. You know, so stopping Rwanda is a good thing, and also this kind of deal with the EU seems, in some ways, a positive thing. But I mean, the ultimate thing, and the ultimate, you know, we've banged on about this in Navarra, I've banged on about this on Navarre myself. You know, the ultimate way to stop these boat crossings, you know, isn't by tackling the smugglers. It is actually just by providing these you know, people who are trying to flee war, you know, persecution and other complicated situations. It's by providing those people with safe and legal routes, because at the moment, those routes don't exist to come to this country. That's why people are ending up in the hands of smugglers, because... You know, that's the only way they can, you know, seek sanctuary in, our, in in the UK. So I think the most important thing, and if Labour wants to actually stop the boats and stop the boat crossings, you know, they need to provide these safe and legal routes. So I think, you know, I found the story and the way the story was framed, especially in, in terms of the smugglers, quite interesting because I think the Keir Starmer, he does see this as, as a vote winner because he sees this as appealing to particular segments of voters, right? So the idea that smugglers are like terrorists and they must be crushed, and that's reported in the Sun by Labour. I think that's telling because I think Starmer feels that there are a particular group of voters who have maybe, you know, restrictive views on immigration and who wants to see these smugglers crushed and that's the way you deal with the, with, the, with the boats issue. That was gonna, you know, get them fired up and be like, Oh, you know, Labour's got a plan for us. So I think Starmer views it as a way to win over a particular segment of voters. Wherever it stops the boats, which is the key thing here for 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 the government, for Labour, the key thing is stopping the boats. Whether it's gonna stop the boats is another issue because I don't think it will.
0: Rishi Sunak's negotiations, as I mentioned, reportedly stalled because he wouldn't accept the possibility of EU migrant quotas. Does the fact that Starmer is not ruling it out suggest that he genuinely might want to solve the crisis?
1: Potentially, and I think you know, we should be encouraged by what Labour announced recently, you know, today. Again, I think it is the bare minimum, and I think what we are seeing is, you know, a- an improvement to what the Conservatives are offering. Who are offering absolutely nothing, but it's kind of, you know, approach to migration that lacks complete compassion and 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 you know empathy for those fleeing persecution. So I think what Labour are offering today is the bare minimum, and it's a good start. So I think Zoe Gardner's, you know brad some this. She's always someone worth listening to, and she's spoken about how you know she understands people have lost. You know, you know, understanding of where Labour are on particular issues. But this is a good start. But it shouldn't be the end point for Labour. It should be a platform upon which they can build. And I think stopping those safe and legal and providing those safe and legal routes, sorry, is the, the kind of next step and next big step. And that could help us, you know, move from an asylum system that is broken, move from an asylum system that doesn't function well. You know, if we're processing claims quicker, we have to deal with the EU, you know, we, we you know, have safe and legal routes, things look a lot better. So I think it's a good start, but not the end point for, for me.
0: Let's go to our next story. <laughs> That was the moment in March 2021 that Patsy Stevenson was pinned down by the Metropolitan Police and arrested. She'd been attending a Clapham Common vigil for Sarah Everard, who was murdered by Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins. Also in attendance was Dania al She was arrested too after the police turned violent. Here's how she described the events at the time. When
3: I saw the policemen there kind of handling the women on the bandstand quite aggressively pushing them um when all we wanted to do was just stand there stand against the violence against women in this country that's all we wanted to do i felt it was necessary of me to join the women on the bandstand um so i climbed over the bandstand um away from the police and i was joined by another woman and at that point, there was four of us at the bandstand. A few minutes after, I, I want it to be clear that this all happened in quite a short period of time. It's not like we were given hours to mourn or even an hour to mourn. This happened within half an hour of me arriving there. I wasn't. I personally don't feel like I've even mourned yet. It's all been. Um, just Speaking up against this, but I don't feel like I've yet to mourn this. Um, at that point, we got dragged. I luckily, I, or if you can say, we were luckily, just standing there, we were just standing were just there, just d- that's all we were doing. And you know, I've been manhandled before, and it ended badly. I was very aware, in order for nothing to happen to me, I was thinking at that point, if I get dragged. If my head hits the floor with the amount of policemen there, there's only as four women on the bandstand, I was going to die. And there's no exaggeration to that. That's honestly what was going through my head.
0: Now, you probably would have seen the images taken from the Clapham Common Visual. The one of Patsy Stevenson in particular went massively viral. I believe it became a photograph of the year for several news outlets. But now both women have been paid substantial damages by the Metropolitan Police after the force agreed to settle rather than face them in court. The Met has also apologised, though after years of pursuing the two women, it might feel too little, too late. On Good Morning Britain, Stevenson explained what the victory meant for her.
3: What do the words from the Metropolitan Police, the apology from the Metropolitan Police and the the
5: damages, compensation, what do they mean to you? I think it's... It's a relief that that battle is over but that doesn't mean that we're we're stopping the fight against um, police brutality and unlawful arrest and misogyny and racism within the police. I think you know we were never going to get full accountability, especially from the Met um, but I hope that this shows everyone that if you are being, um, targeted or uh, some institution you think is too powerful that you can't fight them you can fight them and you can win and it's really hard but it does happen.
0: Pat Stevenson very emotional there because it has been a long road for her and our Bayard. In 2021 a police inspectorate review of the police's use of force described it as quote absolutely right. And it was only last year that the Met stopped pursuing convictions for women arrested at the vigil after the CPS declared the cases not to be in the public interest. Alabed was even convicted in her absence under a single justice procedure that took place behind closed doors. She later had that conviction quashed, but described her reaction like this. I was devastated when I found out. To be convicted behind closed doors for standing up for my human rights and our rights just to be safe from violence felt extremely unjust. I didn't feel like I could fight it. I felt like shrinking and taking up less space. I started to blame myself for ever speaking up. It brought back some of the terrible experiences in my past and took me to a dark place where I didn't think my voice mattered or that I even had a right to speak. The apology and the payout hopefully means an end to the Met's campaign of harassment against Stevenson and Alabiad, But that doesn't mean the end of the women's campaign against the Met. Speaking on Sky, Stevenson said this about what she thought should happen to the force next.
5: Every single time something like this happens, there's too much public pressure. It's like a pressure valve. There's too much. And they release it with, we've got a new commissioner. Don't worry, we'll reform. And they don't time and time again, it just resets the media, it resets public pressure, and it ends up being forgotten about. And that's what we cannot let happen again. Right now, we need to keep up the public pressure on the police. They need to absolutely radically reform the entire institution or abolish it, if I'm honest. I think I'm at that point, I never thought I'd say that I I agree with abolishment, but it's looking like it's a good idea in my books. In the wake
0: of the settlement, the Metropolitan Police said this. The Clapham Common Vigil took place in extraordinary circumstances. We tried to achieve a balance that recognized the rights of the public to protest and to express their grief and sadness while also continuing to enforce the relevant COVID legislation. A protracted legal dispute is not in the interest of any party, least of all the complainants who we recognize have already experienced significant distress, distress as a result of this incident. The most appropriate decision to minimise the ongoing impact on all involved was to reach an agreed settlement. It's worth remembering that the COVID legislation they state, the relevant COVID legislation, was rules, guidance that were so vague, so arbitrarily decided that they had people, you know, brought up in court for going to their allotment alone in the mid when they were feeling sad and isolated at home this is this is legislation that has seen some of the most vulnerable people in society financially penalised beyond their means just because it was so left up to interpretation by the authorities about what counted as a break in covid legis- legislation this is the legislation that Wayne Cousins used in the first place to abduct Sarah Everard relevant legislation Patsy Stevenson in her interview, the first clip that we watched, said that her takeaway was you can fight the Met and you can win. Mike, compensation payouts seem to be the limit of what it is to win against the Met. We see it happen time and time again. We talked about it recently on the show, the Met making a massive payout to the family of Daniel Morgan after years and a botched investigate, multiple botched investigations. Is it a victory though? Is it a victory to get a payout from the Met? Should we be pushing for
1: more. I don't think it is a victory. I mean, it kind of ends the debate, but in terms of a victory, what well, a victory is actual change in the police, an actual change in police tactics, an actual tangible change in the way police interact with groups in society like women, like minority groups who have often in, in, in recent years borne the brunt of you know police ho- tactics that have been quite regressive. So stop and search, you know, the way police responded to the Sarah Everard protests. You know, we see no- a number of incidents when it comes to know, policing that, that should raise alarms and should actually stress that the fight has only just begun. And I think, look, I admire Patsy and Dania so much for their dedication, their drive, their advocacy on this issue. And I, and I admire, you know, how, you know, determined they've been in their fights. And then we should all admire what they've done. But I think, you know, victory is is more than the payouts. Victory is is systematic change. Victory is, you know, the lives of, of people not being affected by the police in terms of, you know, police brutality. And, and I think to, to Patsy acknowledges that, that you know, there are still massive issues with the police that needs to be addressed. And I think, you know, when it comes to victory, I think of the family of Chris Caber, you know, who Chris Caber's family have been fighting for justice for the last year. You know, so you know, victory means that there isn't a family at like Chris Caber fighting for justice because Chris Kaber is still with us. You know, so these are these are the reasons why I think, you know, justice and and, and you know, what we want isn't just payouts, what we want is is actual change, because until we see that change, unfortunately we're going to have another story where, you know, unfortunately a woman's been treated badly by the police, or a black man's been restrained with excessive force by the police, or, you know, black people continue to be stopped and searched excessively by the police. Until we see that change, we can't claim any victory. So I think this is a positive story and a positive moment in terms of Patsy and Daniel getting a payout, and, and, and that, you know, being something that, you know, their dedication and their drivers has has created. And and I'm full of admiration for that. But in terms of actual victory, you know, I think, you know, and Patsy again acknowledged this, I think we need to see more happen for us to to speak of victory.
0: Before our next story, I want to talk to you about something important. Having really great, pluralistic, left-wing journalism that challenges the status quo is, in my opinion, something worth funding. Navarra Media isn't reliant on flaky or fragile funding models. We are powered by people, people like you, who trust our journalism and value what we do. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you. Let's go to our next story. It's a rare one. It's a little rare treat we've got for you here. A positive news story. This will just take a moment. About housing. Can you believe it? Here is an intriguing headline from the BBC. Cornwall Council sells £640,000 flats for £1. Now... You may be wondering, as I was when I saw that headline, what is behind such a major discount? Is it located perhaps next to Boris Johnson's new gaff? No. Instead, it is an attempt to maintain affordable local Housing. Eleven Grade 2 listed flats in Lew, South East Cornwall, have been sold to the Three Cs Land Three Cs Community Land Trust. Cornwall Council, which owned the land and flats, had vetoed a one million pound refurbishment in 2021. But the Three Cs Trust said they could raise the money through grant funding if the flats were sold to them for a cheap price. They received support for the bid from Lew local councillors Edwina Hannaford and also Councillor Armand Toms who i happened to speak to earlier today
6: the beauty of the the uh, land trust taking them over is that they'll be kept for the local community um and, and if they hadn't have been taken over they would have been sold probably sold off you know um there was quite some controversy not so long ago when a, uh, a council place was sold down west where it was sold for about a million pounds Because it had a magnificent sea view, you know. And and for me uh, at the moment, with the housing crisis currently going on, we need to keep every bit of property we can for local people. How
0: are you seeing that housing crisis play out in areas like Loo and Cornwall? What does it look like on the ground there?
6: It's tough. When you think that everything's predicated on, you know, even for a housing association, on 80% of the local values and rents that are are being paid in places like Loo, that's a tourism hotspot um, and and people are uh, being moved out and places sold for being Airbnbs or holiday lets or, you know, used for second homes. It's a tough situation out there. At one time, I had six people on my list that have had uh, what they call a Section Twenty One A, which is the the landlord's right to say I'm going to sell the property, I'm going to let it in a different way, and and they have to move out. and And I think any uh, councillor in Seaside or you know, coastal communities will understand exactly what I'm saying. It's a tough situation for local people that want to have private let- uh, private rented accommodation.
0: This amazing deal that's been done to preserve these 11 flats and refurbish them for local affordable housing purposes. How did the Community Trust and Lou councillors like yourself get this deal over the line with Cornwall Council? Was it difficult? Were there any obstacles? Or was it that everyone was pretty much in agreement?
6: Every councillor in Cornwall, you know, from town and parish councillors right up through to Cornwall councillors, are well aware of the situation of the uh, housing market across the whole of Cornwall. Um, it's a popular tourist destination. It's a popular retirement place. You know, we have uh, 27% of the population are over 65. So, you know, it, it is increasing uh, popular for people to move here and of course with that means that you know people that are on the lower wages especially the minimum wage struggle to afford to have um you know private rented accommodation
0: yeah tell me what is the affordable housing need like in lieu how many of your residents currently can't afford these skyrocketing private rents or to buy their own house?
6: I think the current rate for my local area is um, 15 times the average wage, you know, which is, well, just thinking of the deposit is probably, you know, an excess of years of wages. And, you know, people can't afford that any longer. You know, the price of petrol has gone up. And if you live in Cornwall, you've got to have a car because public transport is... Um, not as good as it used to be, if you work in Plymouth, the last bus bus now back from Plymouth is at five thirty. Well, most of the shores, stores, and shops shut at six, and how do they get back home unless they've got a car these days? petrol, the tolls on the bridge and and everything else that goes with it is all a part of the impact of the cost of living.
0: Do you see this model? Um, of you know, councils working with community trusts in order to sell them land and housing at much lower prices than they would have been at auction, so they can go back to the community and be refurbished and repurposed for community bases. Do you see this as a model that other councils should follow?
6: follow? I certainly do, Moira. Um, th- this is important. It's important for for local people. I'm a low boy, born and bred, and I've I've had the pleasure of living here most of my yeah. life and. I'm very happy that I'm able to do so. But the youngsters today don't have the same advantages of being able to earn enough to save a deposit to buy a house and and to live in their local community. It it pains me to say it, but something's gone wrong where hardworking people can't buy a house and, you know, they're pushed out of the market. 60% of their income goes on their rent in a place to live. It, it, it's tough out there at the moment and with the ra- raising, u- raising the cost of utilities and that, you know, we need to use every tool in the box to provide that affordable accommodation and, and this scheme does that in, in bucket loads.
0: I've seen quite a few stories from Cornwall recently where it's been really inspiring examples of self-sufficiency or community taking matters into their own hands. But do you think... This is action that is taken because places like Westminster have neglected Cornwall and what's going on
6: there. I've been a councillor 20 years and um, when I started, you know, I might have been a fair bit younger and probably a little bit more naive, but over the last 20 years I've seen an increase in the impact of decisions made in London that have had on places like Cornwall take Uh, The bus service, you know, uh, in London, you know, you can jump on a tube, you can jump on a bus, you can use your Oyster card, you can use your credit card to get on and off. And it's so simple and so regular that it goes on all the way through the day and night. In Cornwall, when your last bus is at 5.30, that's it. And if you haven't got a car, you can't go anywhere unless you... Either cycle or walk, and I don't know whether you know Cornwall. is nearly a hundred miles long, and 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 at the border with Devon is fifty-two miles wide. You know, mm-hmm. so to go to your next community is is a drive or a, a cycle or a you know hours of walking. It, it's not like in being in a city or in London. It's completely different, and you've got to be more self-sufficient. This community over COVID was. Absolutely brilliant. We had 209 volunteers. We had community meals that went out on a twice-weekly basis and still do. Um, We had hardship funds. We had funds for Christmas presents for children that had very little. We are a good community and, and, you know, we've looked after each other so well in the last few years and, and, and I think this is a part of what we need to do for the future to keep the the people of this town together and uh, provide accommodation for the future.
0: Do you think that this would need political will on all sides in order to implement somewhere else in the country? Or is it something that a small group of councillors and, uh, you know, civilians who wish to get involved and start a community land trust could enact even if they're faced with opposition?
6: I think it is. It, you know, it's it, it's a way of keeping things local. And I mean, you, we say that, you know, the the council have sold this for one pound, but they put some covenants on, on it that that will restrict it, that they can't just go and say in 10 years' time, you know, oh, we can make £5 million in profit or whatever and, and, and walk away with bag loads of money. That will not happen. And it's got to be... Um, you know the housing has got to be for local people, which is important because you know your community dies if you don't have that community cohesion. You know that uh, when you live in some, even in London, I've been to London and, and spoken to friends, and they say, "Well, I know two or three, four thousand people in this area," you know, and and that community is important to them. Their friends, their work colleagues and everything else live in that area. And, and it's no different to living in the small community like Lou, where, you know, we've got a population of about 5,300 people. And I probably know at least 2,000 of those people. So it, it, it's the way a community works together. And I think this model could be replicated across the country.
0: God, I loved doing that interview and I loved hearing a what seems like an increasingly rare story about housing where a community has managed against the odds to find a model that can work at preserving affordable local housing, especially in the face of the onslaught from the likes of Airbnb and the increase in private rent and landlords with large portfolios. Let's go on to our next story. A cosmetic shop in Peckham, South London, where I live, has found itself the subject of protest after the owner was captured choking a black woman on CCTV footage. The incident took place on Monday the 11th of September at Peckham Hair and Cosmetics after a row over a refund. According to Sohail Sindo, the shop's owner, the customer, who remains anonymous, asked for a refund and became angry when she was refused. She then said she would take items equivalent to the value of the goods she wanted to return, and it was then that the altercation turned aggressive. Now, we're going to show you this footage because it is important for the context, but warning, it is violent and it contains swearing. This CCTV footage shows shop owner, Sahal Sindo, attempting to stop the woman from leaving, and in response she slaps him. He then grabs her by the neck from behind and begins choking her. And here's what happened next. This time, filmed by a member of the public. Again, this clip is violent, and it contains swearing. Look! Look!
7: Look! Look! Going? I'm gonna call the police. I'm gonna call the police. Babe!
5: Babe! Babe! And fucking look! Thank you, call it. Record recording. Recording. Record call the police. Call the police. Call, the police. call the police. I'm call the police. Call the fucking police. Call the fucking police. Call the fucking police. Is this what this is, babe? I'm calling the
7: police. police. I'm
5: Babe, this man
0: put his neck on me. This boy, this man, um, this man just strangled all me, This Just get off me. This man just strangled me. Get the fuck off me. That footage went viral soon after, and the fallout has continued all week. A community-led protest was organised. People were encouraged to leave messages on the front of the shop. Many addressed what has been seen as an example of anti-black aggression. These are some pictures I took when I went down there on Tuesday. The incident has also tapped into a long-running discussion about cosmetic retailers in multicultural areas like Peckham, which are primarily catering to black consumers, but have reputations of treating those customers disproportionately poorly. Peckham Cosmetics has remained closed throughout the uproar. However, Sindo has been doing the media rounds, despite claiming he is in hiding for his safety. First, he was interviewed by ITN, where he insisted he was acting in self-defense and hadn't choked the woman. Now he's chatted to the mail online from a, quote, secret hiding place. Here's what Sindhu said.
7: I just want to resolve, uh, resolve this matter after 48 hours of the thing, uh, I was quite regretful uh, from the start of the situation. Because when they took the lady to the police, the police took the lady and then I told them, I don't want to press charges against her. As long as she can apologize, I can apologize, we are even. So, there is nothing uh, we have in our mind or, uh, or anything else.
0: The Mail's reporter also asked if Sindo regretted his actions. This was his answer.
7: Of course, I do have the regrets. I do have the regrets, like that. this shouldn't be really happened from the first place. Why did it happen? It was a heat of a moment, probably, that happened, that's it. Mm. And. Um I feel sorry for her, my like, God. Things so are the same way she is feeling down. Do you expect the police will be charging either of you or what, what do you feel? I don't want to get her charged. You don't. Uh-huh. No, I don't want to get her charged for anything. Because the thing was like, it was, it it was done in the shop and that's it. And I wanted the police like, if they take taken her, and then when I asked them and then if she want to give me an apology, I will do, I will do the, I will uh, apologize to her as well.
0: Of course, one voice is missing in all of this is the customers. Her identity has remained hidden, presumably at her request. However, the Met Police confirmed that a 31-year-old woman was arrested on suspicion of assault in relation to the incident. She was later released on bail pending further inquiries. Cinder was interviewed under caution over the incident on Wednesday. Why do you think this incident in South London has garnered so much attention? What has it tapped into?
1: I think it taps into kind of tension between black and Asian communities who often coexist in these multicultural areas. So I was speaking to my mum and sister about their experiences in black hair shops. And what you often, what I hear from my sister, and I've been with my mum and sister in these shops as well, is when you walk into these shops, you often, you know, get treated immediately with suspicion. You're looking around for some hair products and, you know, you have a man following you around the shop. So there's read immediately as soon as you enter that kind of shop sometimes. All the time, of course. But sometimes there's just like cult- I call it a cultural suspicion, where it's like the shop owner is ready to suspect you're going to do something bad, and that, and that has racialized undertones, right? Because you know black people have been linked to criminality far more than other other racial groups. So there is this idea that even within minority groups, you know black and Asian groups, there is this tension where you know eight, some Asian members of Asian groups might view black people as prone to criminality. So is that? immediate suspicion. Now, that's not everyone's experience, of course, in these shots, but I can only speak anecdotally with my mum and sister who have said that, you know, didn't follow around in these shots, and I've actually seen it happen myself. So I think it, the reason went viral is because lots of black women can maybe resonate with that experience of, you know, being dealt with in these shops in ways that are inappropriate, you know, two wrongs that make a right right. So I think a lot of people, and the conclusion, the conclusion I've come to with this story is that, you know, in some ways, the woman in question didn't deal with handle the situation well at all, and then also I don't think a shop owner should, in any case, be strangling someone over a dispute about re- refunds, etc. So I think you know this story does expose that kind of tension between ethnic groups that exist in these multicultural areas. Um, and certainly, I think also black women of you know the reason why they took to the streets yesterday or, or the day before, sorry, because they're frustrated because I think a lot of people who live in the area, maybe will live in maybe similar areas. Like I, I know Tooting has quite a few black hair shops. Um, owned by by Asian men or Asian families. I know that, you know, people across the country who live in these multi-ethnic areas, you know, might have experienced the sort of same thing that this this woman experienced. So I think it taps into this, this tension that exists within different ethnic communities. And I think this is a tension that's real and that people don't realise because often what happens is we lump minority groups together, right? So it's BAME. You know, these these people are all the same. But I think there are, you know, real differences in how, you know, black and Asian groups experience the world. Of course, there are similarities as well. You know, both groups experience racism and discrimination at the hands of, you know, you know white people in this country. But there are some nuances and differences. And I think the story kind of brings all of that to the fore.
0: I think that is an excellent point you've made there. And something that if you are not a member of these groups or don't live in these areas, you... Are usually not aware of that tension um you know and it's, it's really interesting there's a there's a famous chain that exists in london called pax which is actually owned co-owned by a jamaican man um but if you go into the shops you are followed around by staff who are primarily south asian and that has caused a lot of tension because this primarily caters to a black consumer base but the problem is these, these, you know, these tensions are not really discussed or addressed. So what we get instead are these explosive incidents where everything comes out at once, rather than, you know, inter-community attempts to discuss this. And it's also because minority communities are often bunched together in certain areas, as you say, Mike, um, and... Pushed into certain areas and just, you know, grouped together and just like, babe, you all need the same things. You should all just, you know, go over there. You're a homogenous blob. You all have the same needs and experiences of the world, which is not how things go. Um, but I just, I'm hoping that out of this comes better inter community discussions or better inter group discussions. But what I'm actually seeing instead is, you know, a real. I don't know, an an explosion of tensions in a way that feels, again, like it's more divisive than it is going to be cohesive, which is very worrying. And another thing I've been thinking about more broadly is, you know, this this, there's been a lot of retail incidents. There's been a lot of incidents where we see conflict erupting in retail spaces. And I was talking about this a bit on social media. COVID was brought up as a turning point where shops became this real site- it was one of the only places that people could gather for a start. Um, and it became very fraught suddenly. You know, it was individualism really was boiled down. You was, who's going to get the last eggs? Am I up against this person, this other person? Is this person infected? Is this person not infected? And the impact of that seems to have stayed with us as we are mired in a cost of living crisis where being in the shop, it's now, again, still a really fraught situation. It's, it, you're reminded all the time that all these prices are going up. You're being surveilled by shopkeepers um, who, you know, when I get to PAX, then I'm followed around the shop. But you're being surveilled anyway by shopkeepers who have now trying to catch shoplifters because this idea of a shoplifting epidemic in response to the cost of living crisis is being pushed by papers such as the Daily Mirror, etc. You know, they we're going to catch all these shoplifters. We need a snitching hotline. And... People, as we've talked about before, you know, this, this, this class, this asset class, who are trying to protect their livelihoods, while people in the meantime are trying to survive, and it's this, this, this where desperation meets survivalism. I don't know, what do you think about this idea that shops have become an area where tensions erupt,
1: I think they definitely have. And I think the story is about, you know, we must deal with these shoplifters as opposed to dealing with the root cause as to why we have, you know, more and more shoplifting in this country and why, you know, people are, you know, going to shops to steal medicine for their children, for example. So it has become a real site of tension and it has become this real, I think, especially because, the, as you as you mentioned, Moya, it was one of the only places you can go to. So in many ways, going to a to shop during COVID was like your only adventure. And, you know, there was a you know, scarcity, there was you know, lack of resources. And now we're in a, in a position where, you know, there, is, there isn't an issue of scarcity now, but actually, you know, people are struggling financially because of, you know, the cost of the living crisis, a hangover of the pandemic, your unemployment, and the government not doing enough to support people. So so all of these things mean that the, shop, the shops have gone from a place where people were passing over the last eggs, to people are like, you know, desperate times called desperate measures where, you know, some people are having to steal some resources from the shops and, you know, shops are introducing these kind of punitive measures. So the shops have become a site of tension. I think a final point I'd make on the... And the shop story, the Peckham hair shop story, is that I think this the kind of interest, the tension between Black and Asian groups hasn't often been acknowledged by the kind of two groups themselves. Partly because, you know, these groups themselves are it kind of you know, we, we both face structural racism, and there is this idea that there is a bigger enemy, there's a bigger fight. But I do hope that this does kickstart the conversation as you mentioned, Moya, where recognize that there is this tension, right? There is this tension where, you know, occasionally, you know, black people are treated with suspicion and, you know, maybe some black people treat Asian groups in ways that are not are not nice as well. So I think that tension does need to be recognized and needs to be acknowledged. And, be, you know, as you mentioned, I think that intra community organizing and, and you know, just conversations that we have can make things a lot better. So yeah, I think shops have become a real site of tension. I think the story is an example of that. I think the story is a shop list is an example of that. And it's a, yeah, it's an interesting place to be at the moment.
0: I live in the area, as I've mentioned, and I go past the shop regularly. I've been past it every single day this week since the incident happened. This morning when I passed, I noticed that every single sign that had been put on the shop had been torn down. But yesterday, on my way home, who did I see outside Peckham Hair and Cosmetics but this man? Yes, that's noted former actor turned right-wing shit-stirrer, Lawrence Fox. Now, I stuck around for a bit to hear why Lawrence Fox was there, what he had to say, uh, why he was wearing horrendous ripped jeans in the middle of the street. Uh, And it was really interesting watching Lawrence Fox work and watching his corresponding statements on social media. Because Lawrence Fox, anyone who's aware of this man, you know, he started the Reclaim Party, he's built an entire second wave of a career based on anti-wokeness, uh, and he obviously has his mind made up about what has happened in Peckham. But when he went down there to collect content that he was later posting on his uh, Twitter and various social media channels, he was doing a thing that I see men of his class and you know his, his general gender do quite a lot. I call it the Jacob Rees-Mogg engaging with the great unwashed like you or me, Uh, it's that approach where they will talk to you very calmly very respectfully and he was saying stuff like we're all one tribe I don't believe you know in this colour thing is this really a race thing I just don't think it's a race thing to members of the community who was there trying to explain to him why they believed that there was a racial element to the disproportionate aggression that this shop owner was showing to this woman um And he was, you know, he was like, I love to listen. I'm here to listen. I'm here to listen. He wasn't there to listen at all. He wasn't, he wasn't there to listen full stop. Um, But because he was engaging with people in a really civil way and the tone of his voice and obviously, you know, he's got this RP accent then he was sounding really reasonable. And I noticed afterwards, though, when I went on his Twitter to see how he'd framed his discussions, he said, you know, I went down and listened. The only clip that he put up of the discussions he had with people, not one where he was having this back and forth at length with black members of the community who were talking to him for a very long time in a, in a futile effort, I would say, to debate with him about this, because debating with these people, it doesn't work. You, you, Neither of you change your positions. Research shows that that's not how people change their minds on things. But the only clip that he put up was of a South Asian man who came by and immediately said, upon spotting Lawrence Fox and everyone, you know, all lives matter, and then launched into a discussion of why he felt that identity politics or whatever he called it was uh, an erroneous route to go down and why it was divide a, a con- a divide and conquer etc and also then later got an argument with other people about how uh, he'd never been you know arrested on suspicion of doing anything and the people being suspicious you know this really racially coded sort of language um, but that was the only discussion that Lawrence Fox put up when this man was waxing on about all lives matter why is it black lives matter classic boring cultural stuff was he there to listen absolutely not do you look like he looked, like, he looked like he needed a hot meal, I'll say that. Mike, I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight and sharing your amazing insight and your great analysis into all our stories.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: It's a bit of a rich show tonight. And thank you, everyone, so much for watching this evening. This show will be back tomorrow from 6 pm. But for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
1: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to slash support.